Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fagopoulos. This is... Oeuvre Buster. Oeuvre Buster. We're getting a little less exciting, because everyone knows the name of the show. We've done like 70 of these for us to pretend to not know the name of the show. Have we done 70 of them? Something like that. We're close to it. We're really, really close to it. We need to record a native French speaker saying it. Ooh, that, that would be that good. would be something. That would be really much much better than than our broken pronunciation. Let me. I'll 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 text the Godard right now and ask him what he's doing. I think you guys okay. should have a uh, porn parody called Ouvre Bustiers. Nice. Ooh, that's well, really really good. The what bus- a great drop in for our guest today <laughs> to appear. With Sorry, I can't not talk. I wanted no, to roll with I, that, though. 100%. I wanted to go through different like variations of porn parody names for our podcast. There's <laughs> like, a little what bit else of ex- existential dread on my part when we do our like banter for a few seconds for Inside Baseball, and I'm like, we got to get to the guests. So the fact that you just dropped in, I think, is perfect. Welcome to the show. Hi. Ingu. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Um, I'll read your bio real quick, if that's okay. So Ingu Kang is TV critic at The Hollywood Reporter and host of the All About Almovodar podcast. She was previously a staff writer at Slate and TV critic at MTV News. Rest in peace. <laughs> News. That's, that's the formal name, right? That's, it was the whole, the whole thing. How are you doing? How are you holding up in our endless isolation life that we're living? Um, I am really actually okay i think like this whole quarantine situation has been like a real drag uh mm-hmm. of me in that my pandemic lifestyle lifestyle is actually not that different from my regular lifestyle so <laughs> Ooh, has boy. it given you time to write what has it given you time to write uh like for my job well, I mean, just like more so than I think you would normally would. Like, do you feel like it has? I mean, a lot of people have like been oddly productive in ways that they weren't before. Like, do you feel like in some sort of way it has kind of given you more opportunities to write? No, but I have now a <laughs> lot more time to watch reality TV. So I think okay. that's something. That is for sure. Something. I mean, yeah, this idea of productivity in quarantine is like. People are like, oh, you must be getting so oh. much done. I'm like, I look at my phone. I'm on Twitter so much uh, yeah. that it's, it's affecting my personality, I think, a little bit. It's definitely rewired my brain for sure. Yeah. Like it like has, like, for example, as I texted you or as we were talking about earlier in regards to a film like this, which obviously we'll talk about, um, in which it's, I look at the running time and if it's anything above like 100 minutes, I'm like, ooh, like this is gonna I be chihuahuas. A, this is gonna be a challenge. <laughs> like, for sure. <laughs> Again, thank you to Ingu for watching a four hundred minute movie for our podcast. I definitely agree to this without looking at the runtime and then as soon as I put it on last night, deeply regretted it. Like I honestly thought about like canceling on you guys just because I was like, Do I have like the bandwidth for a black and white four and two and a half hour movie? And then I thought I would be a good guy and stick with this. Um, we can get into whether that was worth it or not. 
Well, speaking of good guys, George, Ooh. what movie are we talking about? So what, Liam, two, what very long, impenetrable black and white <laughs> foreign film are we talking about? Today? We are not doing yeah this this movie any justice so far. Um, but we are talking about 1960s The Bad Sleep Well, which is a loose adaptation of a little known play called Hamlet by, I believe, a playwright named Bill Shakespeare. I think yeah, that's I think that's his name. Yeah, Billy Shakespeare. I think he's up and coming. So um, The Bad Sleep Well tells the story of Kochi Nishi, a Hamlet-esque character who infiltrates the family and company of Iwabuchi, a corrupt company executive who killed Nishi's father five years before the film begins. The film begins with Nishi marrying Iwabuchi's daughter, Yoshiko, who has a disability. During the wedding, a lavish wedding cake is revealed that hints at the death of Nishi's father, which is kind of a sly reference to Hamlet's play within a play. Um, from there on, Nishi recruits Wada, who's a lower-level executive from the company, in order to help him reveal the corruption at the heart of the company. The film slowly moves through Nishi's attempts to get his father-in-law arrested for corruption. At some point, Nishi also uh, kidnaps Moriyama, who's played by Liam. Takashi Shimura. The legend himself. Another exec who holds company secrets and who actually figures out that Nishi is uh, Nishi's true identity as the son of the man who was killed uh, five years ago. Uh, the film ends um, with Iwabuchi killing Nishi and Wada and Moriyama off screen, and he makes it look like a drunk driving accident. I'm sure we'll also talk about the ending of the film, which to me was kind of the weakest part. Um, and the film ends with Iwabuchi's children, including uh, Yoshiko, uh, disowning him uh, because they find out, obviously, that he's responsible for the death of Nishi. And at the very end, Iwabuchi takes a phone call from the company executives who basically kind of tell him to take a vacation. Um, and he apologizes for not knowing what time of the day it is because he couldn't sleep well the previous night. <gasps> A not-so-subtle callback to the title. The end. <laughs> the movie is directed by Akira Kurosawa. It's produced by Akira Kurosawa and Tomoyuki Tanaka. Uh, the screenwriters, there's m- multiples, and there's an interesting story about the writing of this movie. But it was written by Hideo Ogune, Ijiro Hisaita, Akira Kurosawa, Ryozu Kukushima, and Shinobu Hashimoto. The incredible score is by Masaru Sato. The cinematography is Yuzuru Azawa. The film was edited, like all of these films, by Akira Kurosawa. The production company, interestingly, was Toho Studios, and this was the first film where Toho said we're not putting up all the money for this movie. So Kurosawa had to form a production company that then co-produced a lot of his films with Toho. And the film was distributed by Toho. The cast will sort of hit the regulars for the Kurosawa people, you know, the cast that we've been talking about. Toshiro Mifune plays Kochinishi. Masayuki Mori, who's actually the lead of The Idiot, which is the film we were just chatting about, is the vice, pre- is vice president Iwabuchi. Kyoko Kagawa, who this is her second film with Kurosawa, but will go on to play a big part in his upcoming films, and is the actress most readily identified with him, apparently, um, is Yoshiko Nishi. And Tatsuya Mihashi plays Tatsuo Iwabichi, and the great Takashi Shimura plays Moriyama. And the other big name that I think we've come back to a couple times is Kamatari Fujiwara, who's Wada, who also plays... Um, he's a ma- he's one of the main characters in The Hidden Fortress. He's the actor in Lower Depths. He is in Seven Samurai, and he's sort of the most like chameleon esque. He's unrecognizable from movie to movie. And then in a brief role is Kurosawa's original sort of uh, sort of leading man, Susumu Fujita, plays a detective for about. 20 seconds at the beginning of this movie and Koji Mitsui who's so good in the lower depths which is one of the last films we talked about plays the reporter um one just quick introduction of fact interesting fact about the production of this movie is that the original draft was written by Kurosawa's nephew who gave him the idea and then they took the script and adapted it to the point where he's not credited with the writing of the movie but there's a funny story about how he bumped into his uncle in Paris on a business trip and, it, and Kurosawa was so drunk that he started screaming, like, this is the guy that wrote The Bad Sleep Well. Like, this, I, and he was like, stop it. I don't want, like, you made the movie. And, like, That's sort amazing. of an embarrassing. Wait, did he give him the Hamlet story. idea? He wrote the original draft based on, like, corruption stuff that was going on in Japan. And okay. they took that and brought the Hamlet aspect into it. So there you have it. Just a few interesting things. The movie was initially pretty disliked by American critics and only in the past, like I'd say 20 years has it gotten more credit and a lot of people consider it underrated. Ingu, what did you think of the bad sleep? Well, 
I really wish that, oops, sorry. Sorry, I had muted myself because my dog was making a bunch of noise. Um, <laughs> I really wish that I had had some sort of like essay to read before getting into the movie. I generally like to go into a movie cold, but I think you have, like the movie starts with this 20 minute wedding uh, scene, basically. And it just takes forever. There's like really interesting stuff in the wedding in the wedding scene, um, and I assume we'll talk about that. But basically, I really wanted to know what was like whatever new scandal was obviously happening in Japan that Kurosawa was responding to. And then I think that the other like thing that I kept thinking was. This movie is so crazy, and yet for all of its craziness, it's really paced so poorly, at least from like a modern perspective, mm -hmm. that it's really hard to appreciate how nuts balls it is. Uh, there's like a point at which like a guy is thinking about like throwing himself into a volcano, and that is maybe like the seventh like craziest thing to happen in yes. this movie. And yet it <laughs> was like crazy really... things and bad sleep well rank. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it was like really hard to get like a sense of like all of the craziness, um, just because everything was like really spread out. And I think either Liam or George uh, said that it felt really impenetrable, and I really felt that as well. That scene with the volcano is crazy, too, because it's like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to drive to the outskirts of town and throw myself into the volcano. You know, the volcano that's like 20 miles down the road. <laughs> that's where I'm going to commit suicide. I was like, what the hell's going on? It also, also reminded me of the ending of Pasolini's um, theorem or Teorama, I believe it's uh, in the... Um, that's another Italian? impenetrable movie I stupidly yeah. watched on quarantine. <laughs> but but you, you know what I'm talking about, too, where it's like the... Yeah. Yeah, the guy at the end is like walking through this like desolate landscape it's a beautiful scene but yeah i was also like what the fuck is going on where are they is that a volcano and then later on like 10 minutes later you find out yeah it's in fact a volcano and it was like this is really odd i think like the main thing is that it's a revenge plot but it's such it's really hard to get a sense of like what the revenge is or how it's supposed to play out because the tactics that the main character uses, who is basically like a prosecutor slash undercover guy who like marries into like the CEO's family and then, uh, I, I don't know, is like very pure hearted. And so he like falls in love with his wife, but like won't have sex with her or something. Um, I just felt like. I don't understand how faking an employee's death and then like using that employee as to like forcing him to like pretend to be a ghost and then like forcing like another guy he wants to blackmail into like looking at a picture of his dead father's corpse. Like so many crazy things happen in this movie, but I was like, how is this supposed to get you the revenge that you want? I don't even know what you're working toward and so it felt extremely slack and then the runtime didn't help yeah the runtime does not help it's funny to to talk about the movie and sort of think of it as crazy so this is the second time i'd seen it and i made the mistake i made the first time which at like eight fifteen on a monday i was like oh time to watch a, the bad sleep well and i was like it's two and a half hours long. I'd kind of forgotten how during, long it was. I you thought did it, it was during one of quarantine? the shorter movies. Hmm? This is the first time you watched it, you said, did you watch it during quarantine? No. I watched it Monday. No, I watched it like a decade ago. Oh, okay, I right. really, and I liked it. I really, really like Kurosawa's noir films, and I particularly like, I mean, the one that, you know, I love the most of all of his films is High and Low, which this movie is definitely feels like something of a rehearsal for on some level in terms of different decisions that are being made. Um, particularly like sort of this opening sequence that lasts for a long, long stretch of time that is in high and low. It's almost the first hour of the film is a single scene. It's almost like a one act play, but this is a really strange movie. And I don't think it occurred to me how strange it was um, until we talked about it. like, yeah, there's a guy that pretends to be a ghost. Like that's nuts. I kind of forgot that that's what's going on there. Um, I think the movie looks amazing. I'm obsessed with the images, but I don't know that it plays as well um, 
at home as it would in a movie theater. This is definitely one of those ones where I was like, man, I'd really like to be in the dark with a bunch of other people having the experience of watching this film. I think it would make it much easier to watch. And I, I, we, this is something we can get into, but I, I do think the movie does some somewhat interesting things with Nishi's character in like the final hour. But uh, this is a hard one. Like this is sort of advanced level Kurosawa to me. I feel like it's a hard one too. It's not like you're going to be like, you should watch Rashomon and Stray Dog and then watch The Bad Sleep Well. It's like that. This is like upper, upper sort of, you know, 700 level class for this, for this, uh, for Kurosawa. George, what do you think? So I, so I had like the same kind of experience watching this or the same kind of thinking after I, we saw the lower depths and I was like, I'm glad I saw this. There's a lot in it that I loved. Like the wedding scene I thought was incredible. I thought that there were tons of like amazing visuals, like the, the volcano, um, that scene where he nearly throws the guy out the window is incredible. But yeah, it just, I think Slack, which is how, Slack uh, is good. Yeah, Ingu described it as, like, definitely a good way to describe this film. Like, it could have definitely um, been 20 minutes shorter, and I think it would have retained still, like, its power would have been probably, like, a bit more powerful. Even though I also at times, like, catch myself saying things like that, and, like, get it, like, obviously we're supposed to be critical, but I hate saying things like that because, obviously, like, Kurosawa was a master, and he should kind of do what he wants to do, and good for him. Um but I do feel if it was a bit shorter, it'd be it would have been better. But it's funny because the first forty five minutes or the first hour or so is really taken by it, and especially also in the beginning where it kind of almost becomes like this procedural where you're slowly getting more and more information about the corruption, about what's at stake. And I was like, oh my god, it almost feels like a documentary at times, you know, with like all the the shots of like the newspapers and like the snippets of like dialogue. So those parts for me worked really well and it was about an hour and a half in that i was like oh like this the more melodramatic elements of it like the guy pretending to be a ghost i was like i'm not having this (laughs) it's not working for me i think that the other thing that really felt deflating is that it's sort of this like awkward marriage at least to me between a film noir um there's like corporate corruption and um people basically doing terrible things and um melodrama right but i feel like with the i I think part of like the melodrama is that there are these like characters who are really good and these characters who are really bad and uh film noir sort of likes to have the dynamic where like all of the characters are really bad and i think i liked the movie a lot more when i thought it was going in the direction of these cops are doing some crazy ass schemes that like rival in its badness like what is happening on the corporate side and so when i was like well so like basically the first hour or so of the movie all of the stuff that the cops were doing were so fucking over the top that i was like Mm -hmm. oh is this like a movie about like how all the institutions are bad and then when you sort of get toward the end and it turns out like basically the i don't know like arrogant ivanka of like this family is actually like completely pure-hearted and we're supposed to be on their side and they're going to like reject their dad's side reject their dad's money and love and they don't care about like having a privileged life like they're just going to like say fuck you dad i was like am i supposed to believe this like this is not play for me in 2020 it didn't work for me in terms of the brother. It worked for me with Yoshiko, but the brother especially, who was kind of like a dick in the very beginning, right? He's kind of this arrogant, like really um, aggressive kind of bro. When he, when his sudden turn at the end against the father, like that, that I definitely did not buy. I bought it more with the daughter. I like the brother. I So, like, he comes in, like, really aggro with this wedding speech about, like, how he really wants to make sure that... Wait, sorry. So, one thing I really... One thing that I think primes you to like the brother is that mm-hmm. you can tell this is a wedding for a bunch of rich people because all of the people giving the toasts are basically, like, people from the company who, are, who like, do not yeah. care about, like, who's getting married. They're only there to basically pay their respects to, like, the dad. 
the CEO of the company. And so when the brother comes in, in he's like the very first person who like seems to give an actual shit about like the bride. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh, that's sweet. Like a brother can love a sister. Like, okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't expect that. And so much of like that really great wedding scene is about how capitalism is like completely infecting the family so much so that like this wedding basically becomes like corporate pageantry right um and so yeah team brother (laughs) liam where do you stand as far as the brother you know i think i I think the point that no it's fine that that's being made is that there's there's almost like a friction between some of the stylistic choices in the movie and and some of the like film noir things like the other way to think about the pace being um uh what was the word we use slack is i wonder if it's deliberate like i wonder if there's a little bit of too much pull from the tragedy of hamlet being incorporated into the um into the film noir aspect because every image in this movie is beautiful, but they're so absolute and they're so at times like they're almost like, uh, like they're like, they're still lifes or pictures that we see. And there doesn't seem to be as much tension it going on between the characters. Like the film was made in, in cinema or Toho scope, which was essentially cinema scope. And like, it's cool to see a Kurosawa movie that's largely interiors shot in this like, you know, these environments and shot in a wide frame, but it, 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 the images are so good that I feel like sometimes there's not a lot of life behind them. And I wonder if that gets in the way that he's, that the sort of desire to say something about the way capitalism infects the family makes it difficult for us to empathize with anyone because there's a, like a, there's a remove that we're meant to feel like if the, if the, if the commentary about, the corporate culture, capitalism, post-war Americanization, Japan, as it's often described, like it's almost like Kurosawa's sympathies are like hard to parse and where they sit. I feel like, and I'm curious what you guys thought of Mifune's performance because I think it suffers from this like austerity that gets in the way of us really sympathizing and understanding. I think his this is one of the few performances which I think is good, but it's also really inscrutable. I don't really... I feel it, but I don't think I I, I sympathize with him. There's no as layers much as I there. Thought I would. Mm-hmm. There's no layers, or there are layers. I I mean, he has basically two motivations, right? He has the um, he has the motivation of the uh, like basically revenge for his dad, and then his other motivation it, that complicates that motivation. That first motivation is that he actually really likes this woman that he married as part of his ploy to take down the CEO. Um, right. But I think like when I was complaining before about like how I didn't understand like why he was doing the things that he was doing, like one of the things about film noir, like is that it's, they're very intricately plotted and sometimes they're like too like intricately plotted, but you can always tell like why people are doing certain, why people are taking certain actions. And as I said before, this is one where I just like didn't understand why anyone was doing the things that they were doing. Um, And so I found that really frustrating, uh, not knowing like what he was thinking. And so that made it really hard to identify with him because all of his actions seem so opaque to me. Did you feel that the revenge then for like the father's death just wasn't, um, I guess, obvious enough or that there was just kind of, because one interesting thing that I thought about was like, oh, we don't know anything about the relationship with his father, really other than like these vague snippets of dialogue of like, oh yeah, he loved him. Oh no, oh yeah, here's a picture of him at his funeral. <laughs> but we don't really get any sense of what that relationship was like. So was that also part of like what didn't work for you that you couldn't kind of get a sense of like, oh, he like really had a relationship with his dad and that's why he wants to get revenge on these folks? I mean, part of it is also just like the fact that he's an illegitimate son, right? And so there is like another layer in which you don't really know. Or I mean, like maybe it's possible that like a mid-century audience would know exactly what that means. But me as like an American viewer in 2020, I have like a much like less concrete sense of like what that would mean for that character. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I, I do think that, like, not, we can't, like, blame everything on the movie. Like, I think a lot of it is just, like, the distance of time and culture and whatever else. Um, but, yeah, I just, I wanted to know what, like, the protagonist was thinking and feeling. And I feel like that's, like, a pretty basic thing to desire from a movie. Yeah. yeah, I really do think the movie fails. Sorry, George. I do think the movie sort of fails in that regard. Um, George, sir, were you gonna were you gonna say something? Sorry. Oh no, I just think that's a fair criticism. Can I just guys... add one more thing Go about ahead. that wedding scene? I just want to note two things because I am so obsessed with this wedding scene. One is that when I was talking before about like the corporate pageantry, the fact that they have this gigantic wedding cake, like the biggest wedding cake I've ever seen in my entire life, that like is modeled after the the dad's company's building and then has like the rose where like the guy um, Furuya like committed suicide first of all baller move second of all did we totally did we ever get a sense of like who made that cake or commissioned it nishi says that he got it okay yeah yeah because that's like where he like that's the trap so later on i think that when he's about to throw the guy out the window right he says to wada or he says earlier to wada like i brought that cake in to see people's reactions and i noticed your reaction and that's why now I'm pretending that you're a ghost. <laughs> oh, I see. So he basically yeah. like the mouse trap. did like it's the mouse trap in Hamlet. A, yeah. Like a designer cake in commemoration of his father's suicide. Like I said, crazy movie. Which is just like, <laughs> which we've all, you know, like experienced before, yeah. right? Like we all know about the, like that move. Like, it's like <laughs> oh yeah, here's a, here's a, here's a, here's a $20,000 cake commemorating my dad's death. I do it at every wedding. I yeah. <laughs> sort of like a side just like you know i just i want to get revenge on everybody whether or not they were involved with my father's murder suicide yeah. whatever you want to call true, it true story my dad died on halloween so i'm just like every time that the pageantry of halloween is around i'm like oh yeah this is just like part of this is like how i celebrate my dad's death oh, George, <laughs> trauma but yeah that's where the k came from <laughs> but i but I, I put in the notes too i was like this is like the best one of the best opening wedding sequences you can put it up there with the godfather and you can put it up with deer hunter i was like i love the wedding sequence and also like that like greek chorus of the guys in the suits kind of telling you what's happening i thought it was just amazing Mm. the other thing yeah that i really loved about that wedding scene is that you first get this like swarm of like tabloid journalists come in and they're pestering the hotel staff or whatever it is like with all of these questions and it's so intrusive to come out to a wedding and be like who's gonna get arrested today and then it turns out that like Kurosawa actually wants you to side with the journalists in asking these questions because as beautiful as this wedding is and oh my god her kimono her like bridal kimono is so beautiful um she Kurosawa like basically comes in and it's like okay like you think that like the journalists are the bad guys or whatever but actually like the point of this movie is for you to learn the truth and so he really makes you like identify them very immediately with sort of like the more like chattery like populism of the journalists and just Mm -hmm. like flips that switch on you and i really loved that i would watch i would watch a two and a half hour documentary about the filming of the wedding (laughs) for sure sign me the fuck up i'd watch it tonight well in in some ways it's like i wonder makes me think about this whole movie so i watched it in two pieces because i started it too late one night and then finished it the next day I wonder if it's one of these things. It's so dense in some ways. Like you have the, the, you have the journalists, you have the police kind of, you then move into the family. Then you get sort of like the family dynamics. You get the sense that um, Iwabuchi is a shitty businessman in person, but like a good father. It's almost like I wish this thing were divided up into like five one hour. I kind of wish this were prestige TV. Like I kind of wish we got prestige TV. From like HBO Succession. Yeah, something like that. Because it has that little bit of... There's there's almost like it explores a whole bunch of things, but it doesn't go into depth on on them in some ways. And I wonder if it's just a... It's again that weird fusion of like, we're going to do Hamlet, but make it film noir. Which is totally like possible michael aramidia's film with ethan hawk which was this clearly inspired or influenced sort of did that a little bit too um 
I want to chat because one of the things that's come up a little bit in the course of doing this podcast is repeated quotes from Kurosawa making movies saying things like, I don't know anything about women. Like when, when pre- prepping them, like they'd ask him questions, he'd be like, just do your thing. And obviously his filmography very leans very heavily male. And so I'm sort of curious what you guys think of Yoshiko, the only female character and sort of like the arc of her and the characterization, because to me, she is, I love the actress. She's to me like so easy to watch and her scenes are really, really strong in that sense. But I feel like it doesn't, it feels like she doesn't, she, not only does the film not give her a ton of agency, but I, I sometimes feel like Kurosawa doesn't know what to do with female characters like a little bit. What do you guys think? I feel like she's pretty obviously a prop. She's like a vulnerable Mm. thing. And so basically the test of everyone around her is to see how they treat someone who is that vulnerable. Like the brother is protective. Um, Nishi is, falls in love with her, right? Um, Because in addition to being vulnerable, like she doesn't have, seem to have like a mean bone Mm -hmm. in her body. And so she's sort of like this like unrealistically pure thing in this like very corrupt house and then at the end she is going to be poisoned by her dad because her dad is a bad person um i think that like maybe uh you can give her some sort of credit for you can give uh the script and the actress some credit for her trying to come to terms with the fact that her father can be a really evil businessman and like Mm -hmm. a really good dad but also like you're 20 maybe years old like is that cognitive dissonance really that dissonant right yeah like he's nice to you but like he's mean to other people but you're his daughter like that's not that hard to understand she's kind of a cipher like mifuni's character nishi is as well right like that there's like a certain sense that you kind of get a feel for who they are as characters but they're not really well drawn at least that's how i felt about both of them too I think if you wanted to go a little bit further, like, to go out, like, a little bit further out on a limb, you could even also kind of say that, like, it's sort of this, like, condescending portrayal of people with disabilities, because she's so, like, the Mm -hmm. brother is, like, a good person, but, like, at least the brother is aggro in some way, like, he has sort of, like, a degree of edge to him, whether, but, like, she has nothing, yeah, it's like it almost like saintizes her. Yeah. Like she can do no wrong. She, you know, he falls in love with her, and like there's a there's like a hint of like oh poor her. Like I've I have to be in love with her. Like it just doesn't realize her as a full as a full character. It doesn't give her anything to push against. I feel like in the context of the movie and the shift to realizing her dad is evil is not as complex as I think it should be. Yeah, and even that shift is, like, basically ultimately there for Nishi's sake. For Nishi to have, like, someone to mourn him, like, when he's gone. Yeah, and those final minutes of the movie... You know, I was reading a a little bit about Kurosawa's relationship to the movie, and it seems like across the board people really dislike the final, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes of this movie when Yoshiko and... um, I forget his name... Tatsuyo show up and we have the scene with the sort of um, um, Horatio character um, and it turns out that Nishi's dead and then we cut to the scene where we see Iwabushi on the phone talking to what is supposed to be like a Japanese government representative that's never made clear but that's what Kurosawa was envisioning and it's interesting one of the things he says is like the movie didn't go far enough because in Japan you couldn't go further if I'd made this movie in America the ending would be more critical. But as it stands, like this is as far as I could go in making a movie in Japan in the year that I made it. Do you, does the ending work for you guys? What do you think? Well, I felt, so the, the melodrama of it did not, right? Like the confrontation with the kids and the father, that part didn't work. The part where they come and they talk to the Horatio character, you said, right? His friend mm-hmm. who's like, oh yeah, they're dead. They're dead. They're all dead. That part, like, I didn't mind the fact that their deaths happened off screen and that happens really cold blooded way. I mean, I kind of actually like that part of it in the sense, like, you don't see them die, mm-hmm. that everything is orchestrated beyond 
um, yeah, just like off screen beyond what we see. I that part I really liked, and I thought the imagery of like the busted car next to the railroad tracks was like really powerful. But yeah, the the melodrama of the confrontation with the friend, and then of the confrontation with the father, that was the part that I was like, oh this is not working for me. Like if it didn't have Uh-oh. those really over the top and dramatic moments, I think it would have been a much more impressive ending. I think also it was like so hard to get a sense of why the friend was freaking out so much. I mean, like, yes, he lost his coworker and yes, he lost his name, which like, again, it's like a little bit weird. I'm just sort of like, why can't you just tell the world that it was like an undercover job and then get your name back and then get, well, cause then he has to go to the DMV and get all that paperwork <laughs> all over again. He's like, Oh my God. <laughs> He's like, have you ever been to the DMV? Have you tried to explain to them that your f- dead friend had your name for a while? It is impossible. It is Just impossible. show them the movie. Be like, I brought the DVD. The well, no, we, like, well, we, it explains we, everything. What you have to do is you have to roll in with a $20,000 cake that explains everything. All right, so here's this cake that represents everything that has happened in my life over the last month. This is my friend. He's dead now. Are you understanding? But trust me, this cake tells the entire story Here's of my clothes. life. We don't know like why the clothes are so pure and pristine, even though he was in like the bloodiest car accident of all time. Who stripped yeah. him and then like laid out his clothes? We have no idea. Don't ask questions. Um, they cut into the they cut into the cake and they're like, "Oh, red velvet." <laughs> Take a number. What I think is really happening here is we're brainstorming a six-episode true crime way to really break down the bad sleep well. I think it'll go over. Well, can we do like a like a British Bake Off series by which we bake cakes that represent our favorite films? Like that's that's the reality show we need to pitch to Netflix. I think Um, what you should do is go to your dad's place of work, and then that's like the building is like actually what you're supposed to do. It just has to oh, be like no, the most does. boring like government building of like all time. Just like really rant like you know average architecture, nothing pretty about it. Just like kind of looks yeah, but that's the right shape for a cake. So I feel like it would, <laughs> wouldn't be that hard to do. I can't believe we've been talking about this for two minutes. Pretty amazing. I mean, we could go for another half hour, but I will say also one more thing that I did also really like how cold and blasé the dad was at the end. Like when he gives the press conference and he's on the phone, he's like, oh yeah, they're dead. He's like, it's done. Like it really, I think illustrates how um, cold blooded the character is. And I think that for me also like worked really well, even though the entirety of the ending didn't work. But like if that guy is that cold, I just feel like I needed to feel like the first son of like why it matters that his kids have rejected him. Like where is like that tender side of, him that he presumably had in order to get his kids to love him so much um yeah yeah it doesn't really materialize i think we're meant to sort of see the gesture of the barbecue every everything you read about this movie is like but don't forget about the barbecue scene you're like (laughs) the barbecue scene is 45 seconds of this movie it's not like i feel closer to this guy as a character is that the scene where he's wearing the apron and he walks into that yeah yeah, that whole bit. The barbecue. And then he gets the phone call and has to leave. Um, Ingo, you wrote this really great essay about Parasite. Okay. Um, for... <laughs> <laughs> well, and I just wanted... I was, I was reading it earlier, um, and I was wondering sort of what... I was, the mo- there's a moment in this movie that made me think about Parasite a little bit in that there's... The, one of the things that sort of like makes the story a little more nuanced is the moment where... Nishi claims that he or says that the his father left him a few million dollars and he's used this money to like fund his revenge plot. And I think in maybe a better movie there might there might be some not even a better movie, but the the movie doesn't really go anywhere with that. It doesn't question it. And it made me think a little bit about Parasite in the sense that there, the Parasite is a movie, so it asks us to sympathize, but also it, it challenges our relationship to everybody in the movie. And then I sort of started to think a little bit about how there's a weird, bizarre parallel where in both films, people pretend to be people they're not in order to achieve some kind of goal. So in the case of Parasite, it's the, they, they get all these jobs with the with the family. But in the case of this film, it's Nishi kind of 
be joining this corporate ladder in order to get revenge on the people that murdered his father. And I was wondering, did you guys see any resonance or parallels with Parasite, or am I way out of way out in left field here? I'm curious. I think that the only thing that comparison really does for me personally is to underscore how clear, like the quote unquote like revenge plot in Parasite is compared to like the one here like what did he spend that 1.5 million dollars on and also isn't he like part of isn't he like a prosecutor or like a cop wouldn't his like wouldn't the government pay those expenses for him like (laughs) what is happening so Kanishi, we got to talk about your cake budget. It is <laughs> I was going to astro- say, it's all the cake. It's all the cake. <laughs> astronomical. Where's all this? You really need this much money for a cake? It's like, it's essential to the plan. And by the way, delicious. Um, <laughs> I, the other comparison, obviously, is the ways in which I think kind of just capitalism dehumanizes all of us, right? And that like, mm-hmm. regardless of like where you are in the system. And this is what was great about, I think, like Ingu's reading of Parasite as well that any sort of aspirational politics within the capitalist system or any just kind of aspirational politics, right? Let's just, it's, it's impossible to divorce it from capitalism is in and of itself poisonous. So what I think where the comparison necessarily doesn't work is that the revenge in the bad sleep well is pure revenge. Like he's not like, I'm going to kill the CEO because A, I want to be CEO and B, I need the bathroom key for the seventh floor. Cause that's where the really great bathrooms are. So that you don't get like, it's not about him like being aspirational other than the sense of like, I need to get revenge for my dead dad. But there is this mm. overwhelming sense of like, yeah, any sort of kind of capitalist structure will turn you eventually into a monster. Yeah, I think there is sort of like a muddling of like the critique there because like the movie seems like it's about a larger critique of corporate malfeasance um, and sort of like that arrogance that comes with it. And yet the protagonist is so myopically focused on his like, like daddy drama, basically. Yeah. That like you're, yeah, I mean, like you get the critique, but like it never sort of develops to that that next level that you want the critique to be if that makes sense right it totally makes sense and i i also think it's you use the the phrase daddy drama and i'd wonder if that would be a good alternate title for the <laughs> sleep. god damn it i was thinking the same exact thing Liam. yes uh, yes the dad we might be we might be three thousand miles away but we the are film, insane the bad sleep well or in the original japanese daddy drama <laughs> is available on the criterion the dad sleep well the dad sleep well because they're dead the bad dad sleep well but yeah there's all these things that the movie the movie doesn't explore like his dad being part of like the grift a little bit and being a be you know doing you know taking money illegally and it, it there's all that stuff there that 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 could complicate the narrative in ways that are interesting that the movie never never materializes not that we're supposed to really be like editing the movie but i think the like most sort of nuanced uh piece of that uh criticism of corporate malfeasance was actually when uh i think it's nishi who says something like oh like don't mind that like middleman guy because he's only Mm -hmm. a functionary like he is not able to make like the big decision so we have to like blame the big guy and mm-hmm. I think maybe it's possible that, like, if the person he was, like, gunning after was, like, a middle uh, manager, it I think it would be, like, a lot more interesting than if you just had this, like, mm. totally bad guy with these, like, golden-hearted children. I don't think golden hearts are a thing, but you know what I mean. We know what you <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's I, an interesting point, yeah. I also, I think to that point, like, there's there's an interesting yeah there's i was thought about this movie as a little bit of like a poisonous version of ikiru where it deals with like you know the way bureaucracy and being part of that culture like in that case eventually inspires this guy to do something meaningful with with the last years of his life or in, in the case of that whereas the opposite is true in the bad sleep well but there's almost 
I was I thought a little bit about like how there's almost in some ways this feels like a video a precursor to a video game where like he keeps Whoa. moving up the ladder like to the big big boss and it it doesn't I mean I mean, it, it doesn't quite like mean anything because none of the sort of those roles are not clearly as defined. We don't really necessarily understand entirely who these people are. And that could be a, an issue of this film being made in 1960 and us not, you know, the not speaking the language. Um, but it doesn't feel like we have a clear sense of the different delineations between a lot of these people as well. So, well, that's the bad sleep. Well, I still think it's worth seeing. It's beautiful oh, yeah. to look at. I think um, so too. Yeah. But it's definitely not your entry-level Kurosawa movie. Do you have a favorite Kurosawa movie, Ingu? Yojimbo. I love Yojimbo. And I oh, found yeah. out that you guys are discussing Yojimbo next week. So uh, that's great for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I love Mifune's um, performance in that. And also, I feel like he never really gets the credit for being as funny as he can be. Mm-hmm. And it's such a wonderfully comic, physical performance that he does in addition to everything else. And that's sort of like weird little like butt wiggle as he like walks away into the mists or whatever is like my lasting image of that movie. It's such it's a really, good movie. really good. And I it's actually only it one of the ones I only saw for the first time in the past few years, which is crazy. I feel like I neglected seeing that film for so long. Um, Igu, let's talk about your Pedro Almovodar podcast because we kind of have similar projects going here where we deep dive into a specific filmmaker's filmography. What made you decide to do Almovodar? Um, it's actually really simple. I have a friend, uh, my co-host, who I had been uh, watching a bunch of movies with during quarantine. Uh, and basically, he told me he had never watched an Almodovar movie, uh, and I like completely blew my stack. And mm-hmm. we watched All About My Mother first, uh, which was my first Almodovar movie, and then we watched The Bull There, and then I thought, oh, this would actually be a really good podcast. Um, I think our tagline is an introduction to loving the films of Pedro Almodovar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I, he has turned into a full-fledged fan, but I think the podcast is nice because one of us, uh, has watched basically all of his movies and Daniel was coming in really cold. And so wherever you are on that spectrum, uh, mm. hopefully you can relate. For sure. Yeah. I actually have seen sort of the big ones, like all about my mother and, um, talk to talk her, to her but there's a whole bunch in the and i've seen the skin one which is i saw opening night randomly and was like whoa <laughs> so yikes but i really liked it that's so one of the I'm recent excited. ones too right yeah i think 2012 yeah like five yeah. yeah i think the other thing um, that like sort of bums me out a little bit is that he had that like magnificent run in the 2000s and i think he's sort of fallen a little bit from his perch until pain and glory and so it's been really great to just revisit them and try and not that like Amadovar needs any sort of recuperation but just to like get him mm-hmm. like a little bit extra press because he hasn't like been on the top of the director list in a minute and he really deserves to be like all the way up there in my humble singular opinion. talent for sure yeah my wife was in a bar in Madrid once. She lives there, and um, she noticed there was a guy, an older gentleman in the back, surrounded by like a bunch of very, very beautiful men. And she walked by to go to the bathroom. She was like, "Holy shit, it's Almodovar! That's incredible!" <laughs> she was like very excited about it. Um, so, well, Ingu, we hit, we we're really happy to have you on the show. And um, do you want to chat about some of the writing? I know you just wrote a piece for. Hollywood Reporter about your top 10 TV shows of the year. Yeah, I don't think that requires much explanation. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But also go check out the list because I think I put some really good TV shows on there. We'll share links in the metadata and on Twitter. Great. Thank you. I am really excited to watch The Good Lord Bird. I haven't had a chance to dig into it yet, but like I read it. I had to read the description like three times and I was like, wait, wait the... what is this? The Good Lord Bird. What's this? It's on Showtime. It, it it stars Ethan Hawke, who I have okay. to say, like I fucking love now, like way more than I did in he's the great. 90s. And it's yeah. he's playing uh, John Brown, the abolitionist. And basically uh, the show is a period comedy about slavery making fun of one of the 
making fun of one of the most famous abolitionists in U.S. history. Um, it really shows him in all of his, like, white-hot self-righteousness and also his, like, excruciating delusions of grandeur. And, like, the dialogue is just so beautiful. It's a very, like, mannered dialogue in the way that, like, so much of period uh, things are. But it's, the dialogue is so exquisite and it's so funny. And so, cool, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's about slavery. So really, um, yeah, I don't know how better to like sell that. <laughs> but like, it's been kind of a crazy good year for TV, I have to say. I mean, it's been like a crazy good ten years for TV. Yeah, probably a clearer way. To um, yeah, it's a great list. I'm a big fan of John Wilson's movies, and I've just started to watch How To with John Wilson, and I think it's just, it's, it's really, really great. But we will include a link to this and your great uh, Parasite essay and all and about podcast. Almodar yeah. folks can check out. And we're really, we're really glad that you joined us. Thank you, Ingu. It was awesome. Thanks for having me and making me watch this movie that I'm glad I watched, even though it was such a pain to get through. <laughs> the, the, cake, the, we... cake, the cake is in the mail. <laughs> yeah, we sent you a cake. Yeah. Good. It's happy suicide cake. To what me. if we sent all of our guests cake, but there was something <laughs> ominous about it, and they were like, "What's what's wrong with these guys?" <laughs> well, it has to be it has to be in some sort of way thematically linked to the episode they appeared on. Yeah. So like, yeah, um, exactly. Whoever appears on, who's appearing with us on Yojimbo, we'll send them like a cake shaped in, as like a Before, sword. <laughs> sounds like a good idea. Speaking up, uh, speaking of Yojimbo, we're going to talk about Yojimbo next, um, probably with Brian Cogman, who's a writer on Game of Thrones and um, is. We're doing some interesting things right now. We let's see. We've got our Patreon, patreon.com slash Uberbusters. We did a little episode about Mank, um, and I'm going to talk about Let Them All Talk, which is one of my favorite movies of the year, and I feel like not enough people are, are talking about that movie, so I decided to talk about it. And um, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Please, we need you. Please, we need you to do please. That. Why can't you guys write reviews? It takes. I know. I'll write them for you. Just shoot me an email. <laughs> give, me your, give me your iTunes login so that I can log in. Dear people in podcasting world, listen to this podcast that George is a handsome devil and so on and so forth. They write It'll themselves. Yeah. It'll be great. I was Liam Billingham. I was George Fagopoulos. I'm still alive. My name is Ingu K. <laughs> Yay! This was Uber Buster. Bye, all. Peace. Yay.